and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier, and today I'll be speaking to Jim Haynes and to Robert Hess, two very different books. One is a colossal history of the Australian game, uh, the history of Australian football, which Robert Hess has put together with uh, three other authors. And the other is Jim Haynes' book, and Jim is a prolific author. This one is his 29th book. This one's called Great Furfies of Australian History and uh, dispelling some of the myths and some of the tall tales and stories that have been uh, trotted out over the years about things like Ned Kelly, Captain Cook, Breaker Morant, The Ashes, and a whole lot more. Uh, so we'll talk to Jim in just a tick about Great Furfies of Australian History, what you really need to know about uh, some of the myths uh, that have been, uh, well, told uh, lovingly and lavishly over the years. And the other, of course, uh, is Australia's game, the history of Australian football, Matthew Nicholson, uh, Bob Stewart, Greg Damore and Robert Hess have put this uh, book together. We'll talk to Robert shortly about what a mammoth task it was to uh, compile the history of Australian football uh, 100 years plus. But, of course, I want to remind you about our terrific podcast partners, and that is CSCG. Uh, when it comes to accounting, when it comes to tax, when it comes to superannuation, all the things that make up our, our financial picture that each of us have, sometimes a little sketchy for some of us, uh, but uh, they can uh, they can set it all out for you, explain it all to you, and take you through the steps to make sure that your financial plan is a good one. So give them a call. Uh, that's as quick as uh, and as easy as it can be to get in touch with them on 03 9974 is the website. They're terrific people. They'll look after you. They know what they're doing and you'll be happy that you got in touch with them. Let's talk now to a man who will make you happy when you read his book because it's a very good read. The book is called Great Furfies of Australian History and the author is Jim Haynes. Firstly, let me say congratulations on yet another book. Well, it's, what, number 29, I think, this one. Um, and if they can ever get them into the shops because the distribution, <laughs> you're talking about the phones being terrible, the distribution system is is falling apart. Far too complicated for a... Yeah, above you know, our, a, above a, our pace, Carl. A, a poor author to, <laughs> <laughs> to understand. <laughs> well, the funny thing uh, about you is uh, author authors just, I mean, uh, one of the many, many little uh, boxes that you tick. And having written, you know, as you say, this is the 29th book, you've done war stories, you've done drinking stories, you've done racing stories, bush stories, sea stories, trucking stories. So what led you to this one, uh, the the great furfies of Australian history? Well, I think as I was writing all those other books, you know, about various topics, as you said, racing, you know, uh, we did sea stories and, and all sorts of stories, I kept stumbling across things which were not true. You know, you do a lot of research when you write any any book about that's touching on history. And the more I got to understand and be able to use Trove, which is a wonderful resource in the National Library, you can read all the newspapers that, that ever were printed in Australia. Yep. And, of course, that's not accurate either because I was doing a speaking engagement the other day and a lady said, I'd explain Trove. And she said, oh, now you can find out what happened. And I said, no, you can only find out what the newspapers said happened. <laughs> but still, it is almost a primary source, I suppose. And using that and the Mitchell Library, I used to spend half my life in the Mitchell Library. And I kept coming across things. And I thought, you know, I was told something completely different to this. Uh, and the truth is 
is out there. You know, it's not as if I'm the only one who has ever stumbled across these mistakes and lies and burfies. They're, they're there for anyone to discover. But I think it's made a lot worse today because the internet, of course, spreads things so quickly yeah. that, um, you know, once a thing gets out there, then it, it tends to, you know, become – the myth becomes uh, – more more believable or, or more uh, uh, believed than the truth. Well, well, Jim, you would know as someone who's you know been in the entertainment industry for a long time now, and is a is a storyteller and loves that. We 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 don't let facts get in the way of a good story. That's a, that's a prerequisite, surely. <laughs> well, it was one of the first things I was told when I went to work in <laughs> in radio, um, and you know, I mean. It is it is uh, true to a certain extent that we all tend to embroider or, or choose, you know, we choose the bits of the story that, that suit us and, and so on. But um, that's, that's one thing. But, you know, outright uh, falsehoods, um, they're, they're, they're out there. And it's interesting how they develop. I, you know, I did um, become quite obsessed about how the Ned Kelly myth, for example, how did that develop? And in a number of cases, Ned Kelly, Breaker Morant, um, it was to do with the movies because Hollywood has never told a true story in its life. You know, <laughs> you, you give anything to Hollywood and it'll come out the other end like Chinese whispers, completely distorted. Uh, and of course, you know, in movies, it's all about drama and having some romance and the and characters are either good or bad. There's no in between. And of course, History's not like that, you know. We've got a lot of um, good men who had, you know, um, some faults in their character or who'd, who did bad things and vice versa. So, you know, complicated history needs to be unraveled. And uh, I spent about a year uh, on, on this book and trying to unravel and, and get to the truth. And, um, Occasionally, it actually worked. You know, <laughs> in the case of Breaker Morant, I think I discovered the key to the whole business, which there have been, you know, movies and dozens of books about Breaker Morant, but I think there was something that was sort of missed um, about what the whole court martial thing was about. And I think they were out to get a really bad egg who was um, in their intelligence agency and um, he managed to squirm his way out of the whole business and uh, Morant and, and Hancock wouldn't testify against him and cop the rap. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, these characters have been known to other writers and historians and, and storytellers who were telling the story of Breaker Man. But I, I think, you know, if you look at something hard enough and long enough, suddenly the penny drops. And, and I suddenly thought this was all about Arthur Taylor. It, you know, mm. they just got caught in the crossfire. Yeah. <laughs> so. There's a lovely line in the, uh, in the opening introduction of the book where you say, understanding history is not about knowing what happened, it's about knowing why it happened. Yes, I think the truth's always in the background, you know. Um, it was interesting because the last book I did, which was about, you know, characters, 12 uh, amazing Australian characters, but even in that book I felt the need with every character to write, a, um, you know, a preface, a fairly long preface about what I thought was the key to them, you know, when it was um, – um, 
of Nancy Bird, for example, I thought it was important to write the background of aviation history and how women were involved so that it put it in a context, yeah. you know, for her. So I think even then I, I was starting to understand that if you're going to tell anyone's story, you better tell people what the world was like and what their you know, particular personality problems were and, and, uh, and, and explain a little bit about that before you launched into telling the story. So many of our early heroes, though, when they when they were cornered by uh, you know the newspapers of the day, would make up stories about their own life and believe them then to be true. I've come across that. Speaking of the Peter Fitzsimons of the world, who've, who've you know done enormous research into into different characters, and they've found out that uh, on occasions they were actually it was the people themselves who were telling the biggest porky pies about themselves than than anyone else could come up with. That's that's very true, and um, you know, particularly uh, characters like uh, um, Annette Kellerman, who uh, I have so much, uh, you know, regard for. Annette Kellerman, she was an amazing woman, most famous woman in the world, possibly at one point, um, and she ended up living in obscurity and back in Australia where she was born. Um, but she, of course, was um, uh, she was the the highest paid vaudeville act in, in the USA in, in the, you know, first 20 years of last century. And of course, her best interest to publicize herself. <laughs> and, uh, and she did to the extent that stories that have been repeated and repeated and repeated about her, when you examine them, uh, uh, she certainly made them up. And the, the, the most famous one, you'll find it everywhere, is that she was taken to court for indecency on a Boston beach and the judge let her off. Well, there's no record of that event <laughs> ever happening. And yeah. she didn't tell it until about 30 years after it was supposed to happen. You've got to sort out, you know, um, when when all you've got to write a story about someone is their own publicity. I think you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you might be right. It, it, interesting that uh, I love reading the one about the ashes, discovering that that wasn't what I'd led to, you know, all my life. I've, I've thought it was, you know, the the beautifully romantic version that we've been told uh, to, to have it dispelled, but then to have people actually say to you when you tell them the story of what what is the truth, no, 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 that's not how it happened. I've got a relative who's got a relative who's got a mate who's got a bloke who he knows who went to, you know, whose barber was there at the time sort of deal. That's right, and that has happened to me <laughs> in some of my speaking engagements, I talk about the ashes, which is not a cricket story. It's a love story. Yeah. Uh, it's got and and what's in that little uh, you know a lady's perfume bottle? It's got nothing to do with cricket. And and if you step back and think about it, when did cricketers having won a, a really important the only the first time in history that England ever been beaten? When did they think about sitting down and burning some of their equipment? You know, <laughs> they probably went straight to the pub or went to celebrate somewhere. And if anyone who's ever tried to, that story gets gets passed around. I've had people say to me, "No, you're wrong. My great grandfather's uncle was there." You know, and of course he wasn't because it never happened. But can you imagine incinerating those? really hard cricket bales. I mean, they're made of very hard wood. And uh, the idea of sitting down, how did they incinerate them? You know, did they have a blowtorch or did they rub them together like Boy Scouts? I mean, <laughs> when you start to uh, apply the logic test, did what's the chance that this really happened? And you think about it, 
and there's very little chance. And of course, it never happened. The joke death notice was put in the paper by some Englishman with a sense of humour. You know, cricket died at the Oval, the body will be cremated, the ashes will be taken to Australia. Nothing ever was burned at that point. But the next uh, summer out here, of course, the English cricket team came out. They won two of the three official tests. And um, while they were all staying at Rupert's Wood, a beautiful mansion yep. owned by the most powerful and probably the richest bloke in Victoria, his music teacher, the music teacher for his children, fell in love with the English captain, eventually got married, and... Um, during that time that they were flirting and, you know, um, falling in love, she decided to make this presentation at a, at a, a dinner or a dance at Rupert's Wood, got the little perfume bottle, burned her hat veil or, or an old hat veil uh, and put the ashes in it and said, here are the ashes back. And and that's all that ever happened. And then it, when they did marry and uh, she became the Duchess of Darnley, because the English career captain was the eighth Earl of Darnley. Yep. And uh, they lived in a quite a large uh, <laughs> abode in Kent, and it was on the mantelpiece for years. And when he died in 1926, she gave it to the MCC. But it's well documented. You know, her daughter has sworn an aff- her daughter-in-law, who's now passed away, uh, has sworn an affidavit that that's the case. Yeah. But uh, everyone wants to believe the other story. I, I think the love story is better than the cricket story. Well, it's, it's got a, <laughs> another layer or two uh, in it, hasn't it, really, when you look at it that way? It has, and particularly it's a great love story because um, her family were broke, uh, you know, Florence Morphy, who was working as a music teacher uh, at the Clark House because her family had been uh, quite wealthy, but they'd lost all their money. Her father had passed away. And so um, when he wrote to his father back in England, the, the, the English cricket captain, uh, Ivor Bly, he wrote back to his father. He said, Father, I have met the most delightful creature. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> delightful creature. And I want to marry her. And his father telegrammed back, says, she got any money? He said, no. He said, come home. <laughs> and uh, so he went home. And then uh, the love story, of course, he caught the next boat back and they married at uh, St. Mary's Church Sunbury and she became the Duchess of Darnley. And she was a pretty good old Duchess too. She, during World War One, she um, set up their their estate as a hospital for Anzacs and and you know wounded soldiers from the from Gallipoli and the and the Western Front and she she received an honour for that she was made a um, MBE I think or you know um, an English honour and it wasn't through her marriage she actually earned that herself she was a pretty good old stick I reckon old Florence Morphy. Yeah, there you go. And it is, a, it is a great story. But as George Costanza once famously said in Seinfeld, it was a perfectly good lie up until now. You just, <laughs> just, just ruined a perfectly good lie, Jim. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. And I, think, I think one of the problems is see, my teachers at school and my mother certainly told me a lot of the lies that are in the book. <laughs> um, my mother told me the one about the little cabin boy who was Captain Cook's uh, wife's nephew who was allowed the honour of stepping you know, ashore at Botany Bay. And that story did not appear until long after Elizabeth Cook had died and she lived into her 90s and a member of her family told that story and it was you know, like 
70, 80 years after the event. And if you read the journals, all the journals, you know, uh, Banks and Cook, they when they were landing at Botany Bay, the, the locals were actually threatening them and throwing spears and rocks at them. So mm. Captain Cook actually fired into the air to try and scare the locals off. And at that point, you know, it hardly seems likely that with, with that danger around, you would, uh, you know, tell a member of your wife's family to go first. So <laughs> that wouldn't make you very popular at home. And of course, he was, on, uh, Isaac Smith was on the ship and he wasn't her uh, nephew. He was actually her second cousin, but he was 18. You know, he was a midshipman. He went on to be an admiral. But, you know, the picture, the story I was told, his little cabin boy is about 10. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> not only, not only was the age wrong, it never happened. Yeah. So, uh, hey, the use my of the mother word, loved that story. The use of the word furphy, I, I mean, it's it's come back into the vernacular of recent times because it's a beer. Um, but up, uh, it's a word that I reckon disappeared from our language for, 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 oh, well, I can't remember it being a word that was used when I was growing up as a kid. Yeah, it, it is a very Australian word, and ironically, you know, now it's been sort of purloined by a beer company, but um, the, the the word comes from a water cart because when the men were training for World War One, they'd be out, you know, shooting, marching, drilling, and then uh, the water cart would come around and they'd all have a break and they'd gather around the water cart and that's where all the rumours were told, you know, oh, I believe Captain Smith's being promoted. I've heard that the artillery division are being sent to Egypt. I've heard that so-and-so, I've heard this. And, of course, it was pretty much like the, the water cooler in the office where all the fibs and rumours get passed around. Oh. And um, so it, it, it developed by people when they heard a story that was likely to not be true or that wasn't substantiated, they'd say, don't believe that. That's just a furphy. That's just a story told around the water cart. It's a rumour. And uh, from there, it sort of entered the language. But you're right, it was it was sort of uh, old-fashioned and, uh, you know, very archaic, I suppose. But now we've got the beer, which is a long way from a glass of water. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Are you expecting a, a barrage now that everyone has got a you know a keyboard and access to, uh, uh, to 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 information as you mentioned? You can go back and look at the papers and all that stuff. Are you expecting a barrage of people to come and um, uh, sort of knock on your door, uh, not literally, but uh, uh, sort of metaphorically, and and say, "Now, Jim, now listen, what really happened was this." <laughs> well, um, I, I'm pretty. I feel pretty secure, but I know that there's um, particularly a, a group of uh, people who want to mythologise Ned Kelly yeah. as a sort of symbol of the Republic. And uh, you've mentioned one of them uh, who, <laughs> who's promoting that myth. Uh, who's a mate of mine too, um, and and that's. Uh, you know, Peter Fitzsimons, most of the stuff written about Kelly perpetuates that myth. So I concentrated on destroying, if I could, the myth that he was, uh, his father was an Irish rebel, which is absolute nonsense, or that he had any notion of a republic. And uh, I think that's nonsense too. So I stuck very, very carefully to those two ideas rather than get into the, uh, the whole debate about, you know, whether he was any sort of a hero or whether he was just as Malcolm Ellis, the historian, said the most cold-blooded, uh, vicious thug to ever decorate the end of a rope. Well, as, <laughs> so, as, you, as you quite rightly point out in, uh, in the, earlier in the book, you know, where you've rewritten his bio, basically you've turned him into Mother Teresa. Um, 
<laughs> which he certainly isn't. <laughs> That's right. Yes, you can you can you can put a spin on anything, can't you? You know, and, uh, I, uh, I I found that idea uh, appealing. You know, the Mister Kelly was a famous character who who unfortunately passed away when a. a a platform he was standing on collapsed yes. at, a, at an important event. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a way of, <laughs> of twisting the truth. Almost a CFMEU, uh, you know, incident type on a building site. And, uh, <laughs> yes, that's uh, right. And those sorts of things. <laughs> hey, from someone who actually invented a place, you know, Wheeler Barabrack, I mean, you're not you're not adverse to making up stuff yourself. Well, actually, Wheeler Barabrack, it does exist. It's a property out the back of, Oh, between Gubbo and Tamworth, out in the those that wild country out there, oh, right. and um, I I borrowed the name or, or thought I'd invented it possibly because I had to write books and do you know stories about a mythical town, and if I chose the towns in which I've actually lived, like Gunnedah, Manindi. In Burrell, then I would have been sued. So I had to, I had to have a, a fictional town to put all those characters into. And uh, I have received numerous photographs over the years of the sign which says Wheeler Barabak, and it, it's a sheep property, I think. Oh. Uh, you know. Out, out the back of Corindai there, so it, it does exist. But of course, you know, um, uh, Ted Egan has uh, kick a tin along, sink a tinny down is the name <laughs> of his house, and yes. uh, uh, you know, drag a bag along, and and all the joke Aussie names. Um, but uh, there actually is a wheel of Barabak, so I can claim that I that you know you put it on the it, map. It's not it's not a town, but yeah. <laughs> but it, it's out there. Oh well, you know that's what we've said at the start. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story, Jim. <laughs> that's right. Now you're already you're already working on book number thirty. Yes, yes, it's uh, well and fully underway, um, and uh, it it. it Follows on from the one I did last year, um, you know, pioneers, adventurers, and misfits. Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be about rebels and rogues and ratbags. The next one, so uh, more uh, colourful characters. I mean, there are so many. You know, there were one hundred and sixty-two thousand convicts, and I reckon every one of them has probably got a, yeah. a, a jaw-dropping story. Of their life, yep. you know, there are stories waiting to be told, and um, I don't think I'll ever get through the whole hundred and sixty-two thousand. I think there are two of them in the next book, and of course, uh, there were a couple in the in the previous book to the, to the one that's out now. But um, you know, everyone should tell their stories, their family stories, their you know their their own history, because we we lose it otherwise, and yeah, if we lose our day. history, we lose our way. Because if we don't know where we came from, not much use knowing where we think we're going. Yeah, really good point. Great furfies of Australian history, uh, whether it's Captain Cook or Breakham and Rand or the Melbourne Cup or the Ashes, uh, all covered in there. Beautifully done, Jim. Congratulations on the book, mate. And thanks for spending some time uh, having a chat with me about it. My pleasure. Always happy to chat. Great furfies of Australian history. What you need to know about all things like the Ashes and Ned Kelly, well, grab the book and have a, uh, a look at it. My thanks to Jim for spending some time having a chat to us here on the podcast. The next book is uh, is much bigger and totally different. It's the uh, encyclopedia, I guess, the history of Australian football called Australia's Game. And Matthew Nicholson, Greg Damore, Bob Stewart and Robert Hess have put it all together. So let's talk to Rob about the book. 
Let's talk about Australia's game, the history of Australian football. Yourself, Matthew Nicholson, Bob Stewart and uh, Greg Damore put this together. Over what period of time, Rob, because it's a massive book? Uh, look, I, I think somewhere in the uh, acknowledgements of the book, we, we claim that the, <laughs> the research took place over about 25 years because Matthew Nicholson, Bob Stewart and I were all either involved as postgraduate students or staff members at Victoria University way back uh, just before the year 2000. So we, we count our collaboration right back until then. Yeah. Uh, but it's only in the last four, four or five years that we've put time and effort into this particular time. That's where Greg Damore, who was a, again a, um, an alumni from uh, Victoria University and uh, got involved in our team and uh, helped was there a uh, was there a concerted push from a from a group that that wanted this all put in uh, you know in in one book and not sort of little bits and pieces here and there in, in sort of a whole other book? They wanted actually to have a definitive history of our game that you could just grab and go. Well, here's the Bible. Uh, look, all of us have been working on our own particular areas, and we've been running conferences and football studies was offered as a, a subject at uh, Victoria University. So we getting input from students along the way and producing journal articles and uh, running conferences, etc., and drawing academics from around Australia and overseas to, to talk about the development of football. Um, but it was felt, you know, that a definitive work and, and bringing all this research and um, discussion about football together uh, was something that we wanted to aspire to. And we managed to get a publisher that wasn't afraid to, to publish a big book. So that was the wonderful thing about football, Rob, is that uh, it is a game of opinions, and I can I can watch I can watch a game and have a totally different opinion to my my thoughts on it uh, to yours. How do how do you then kind of how do you factualise what is the great and and you want this book I know to be a celebration of the game, and how do you factualise that? Well, as historians, we're always conscious of the evidence, so we like to think that our book is evidence based, but there's room for opinion on top of that and how much prominence you give to some aspects of the game. We particularly like uncovering the hidden aspects of football that hadn't been given so much coverage before. And two examples that spring to mind is you know, the fact that in the 1890s in Ballarat, there was a Chinese football premiership where teams of Chinese uh, descendants of the gold miners were involved in a football premiership. So that's that's a hidden fact, if you like, that, that, that we've managed to bring to life. And also the long-standing involvement of women in football. Um, Jill McLaughlin described the AFLW as, a, as a, a revolution. We like to think of it more as an evolution that dates back more than 100 years. And that's the, the beautiful thing about this book is it does actually bring you the evolution of the game because it, it certainly has evolved from, for, from where it started. Uh, yes, well, uh, it's partly the, the storytelling aspect of the book is quite important as well. It's not just a listing of facts and figures and, you know, um, quoting from the AFL's annual report, it's, it's delving behind the scenes, looking as much as we could at the grassroots, but seeing how, how that had an impact also at the top level of the game as well. And I guess the other distinctive thing about the book is its national focus. So rather than just looking at Victoria uh, as the heart of the game. We've looked at all the states and territories uh, and tried to thread their story into the narrative as 
mentioned women's football again. I mean, here was a phenomenon that started in Western Australia in 1915, made its way to Adelaide, and then, only then, made its way to Victoria. So we there's a sense in which we're doing a bit of myth-busting in terms of uh, what people might not have expected to find out about our sex of game. Women's football is a good example of that. The, the common uh, modern-day writer rewrites history. You're actually just just filling in the historical facts as opposed to uh, coming up with your own. Yes, yes, there's a bit of that to it, yes. <laughs> which, which I find a, a most enlightening way of going about doing things rather than uh, uh, what, what a lot of people do with the modern vernacular. The colony of Victoria does believe that it owns lock, stock and barrel the game, doesn't it? Uh, it does, and we talk about how how it um, colonised the other states and how the game spread. That's, that's quite an important part of the book in terms of how this local suburban game in Melbourne managed to capture the hearts and minds of you know states and territories outside Victoria. And it wasn't an easy battle, and it's not a it's an ongoing battle uh, in a way. But there's yeah. something quite distinctive about Victorian rules, Aussie rules, Victorian rules as the first, well, Melbourne rules as the first was, then Victorian rules, and then Aussie rules to reflect its national focus. But there, there is something distinctive about the game. Rob, do you bristle when people refer to it as uh, and call the game AFL? The code is not AFL. Mm. The game is not AFL. Uh, so I do bristle a bit the AFL as such. It's the head organisation for the game, uh, but it's not the game. Yeah. Um, you've described the game as a social, commercial, cultural and spiritual force. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's it's, it's quite an amazing part of, uh, of everyday life. Uh, it's a touchstone for many across Australia. And I'm sure you've come across where uh, come across situations where the, the first thing you want to ask someone when you meet them is, well, what are you barrack for? Yeah. Uh, and that's not just true in Victoria, but it's uh, uh, around Australia as well. It's, it's, it's a way of opening up a conversation. Uh, it's a way of relating to other people. It's a game for families. The fact that it attracts such a wide diversity of people uh, to a game just helps that cultural resonance. That goes way back to the, to the beginnings of the game. Well. Yeah, well, you talk about that, that cultural reverence. It's that cultural attachment and that, and that feeling of belonging that, that football has brought for so many people, either as spectators and fans or, you know, the, the likes of a Robert Dibier Dominico or Alex Jeselenko or, you know, now we're seeing Aaliyah Aaliyah and that, that cultural, it brings you into the people that you're hanging around with and you have a common bond. Uh, yes, and, and that wide variety of social groups that are involved, and it, it partly comes because of the tribal nature of how footy began and how clubs represented suburbs. And those suburbs were made up of all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, and that, in a way, was the challenge in making this a national game, whereas those tribal rivalries are now turned into, if you like, state wide and then national rivalry, which gives the game its heartbeat, its heart and soul, where, where barracks can latch on to a team that they're supporting from whatever background they're from, uh, whatever school they've gone to, uh, whatever suburb they live in, football can be their touchdown. Yeah. Robert, the game has survived world wars, pandemics, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, a financial crisis. 
what's its what's its biggest challenge right now in terms of uh, its biggest threat and its biggest opportunity? Oh, I think one of the threats is, is still its post-pandemic future, but not just at the highest level, but also at the lowest level, because I think in the book we say that during the pandemic there was a, a risk that one in five local clubs were going to go to the wall because of the financial impact of the pandemic and the fact that they couldn't run functions and they couldn't, you know, they're already operating on a shoestring. And COVID knocked, knocked out quite a few clubs. Yeah. So the grassroots of the game uh, is still something that needs to be protected and preserved. So that's the challenge for the AFL, let alone at its, um, at its top level of the game where they're still struggling with scheduling and the threat of uh, further lockdowns, etc. And But the way they did manage it last year in terms of, you know, getting a, a full premiership season mm. in and ending up with a spectacular grand final is, is to its credit. So that was a major success for the game and, and perhaps drew in more viewers around Australia than it, than it would normally in a, in a lockdown society. But outside of that, uh, I think the grassroots is still something that needs nurturing and, and looking after. Well, it's a, it's an enormous book that you've uh, you put together with your your three co-authors. Uh, an amazing uh, anthology of uh, of what uh, what the game, where the game come from, and where it is uh, today. So, congratulations on it. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's it's got every box ticked and every i dotted and t crossed. So, so you've uh, I don't think you've missed anything. Uh, good on you, Kevin. We appreciate your uh, positive overview of the book, and look forward to, to hopefully uh, readers uh, having a good look at it for themselves. I'm sure, knowing knowing football as, as you and I have known it for many many years, Rob, you'll get to, you'll get people's opinions. They won't be backward and come and <laughs> forward. That's for sure. Yes, every everyone has their favourite. Everyone has their hobby horse. Hopefully, our book will answer it and start as many arguments because of that. My thanks to Robert Hess for his time, and he doesn't have a lot on his hands when you put together books of uh, of this size. A terrific book, Australia's Game, the History of Australian Football, and our other book uh, in this podcast, in this edition of Authorised, Great Furfies of Australian History by Jim Haynes. Two very good books, highly recommended. Two very different books, but highly recommended for your summer reading. Uh, and, of course, uh, the the Australia's Game book will finish up uh, sitting there on your uh, in your bookcase as a, a very good uh, reference point for a whole lot of arguments that you'll probably have in the coming football season. But thanks to our podcast partners, that's CSCG. If you want some help with your tax, some help with your superannuation or your financial planning, they are the people to talk to. 3 Double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website and uh, have a look at their services and who you'll be dealing with, cscg.com.au. Hope you enjoyed this edition of Authorised. Until the next time, read a book. It helps, it's uh, good for you, and uh, you'll thoroughly enjoy it. My name's Kevin Hillier. Talk to you soon.